Welcome to the fourth episode of A Decade of Private Debt. As PEI Group's magazine Private Debt Investor celebrates its 10-year anniversary, we're looking back at the insights, stories, and pivotal moments that have shaped the private debt landscape over the past decade. In this six-part mini-series, we're bringing you an exclusive dive into the minds of industry leaders and key players, exploring the challenges, triumphs, and the evolving dynamics that have defined the world of private debt. If you want to hear the entire mini-series right now, you can subscribe to PEI Group's newest audio offering, the Private Debt Investor Podcast, by searching wherever you like to listen or by clicking the link below in the description. Then after this mini-series, you'll continue to get industry-leading insights into the world of private debt from PDI's team of reporters and analysts and from some of the asset class's leading figures. Don't forget to also download Private Debt Investor's Decade Issue for more insight on how the industry has evolved over the last 10 years, which you can also find at privatedebtinvestor.com or at the link in the description. In this episode, PDI's senior editor Andy Thompson sits down with Simon Drake Brockman, co-founder and managing partner at Pemberton. Drake Brockman discusses how the industry has evolved over the past decade, as well as the process of shaping Pemberton into the powerhouse it is today. Simon, yeah, very glad you could join us today. Thank you very much. So we're reflecting here on the last 10 years of private debt and Pemberton's place within the market. Looking back over 10 years, I suppose that was a very significant time frame, isn't it? Because, you know, <laughs> over 10 years, we've seen the, the emergence of Pemberton. So a natural thing for you to do is to go back 10 years and maybe tell us a little bit about what the private debt market looked like then in Europe and how, what it looks like now. Probably a lot of things you could say, but maybe a few of the key highlights. Thanks, Andy, and thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, it certainly has been a um, significant change over that 10-year period from when we first set up the firm. You know, I think if I look at it, you know, private credit really was an unknown asset class back in 2012-13. Most investors knew about it in the US, but were somewhat, I would say, skeptical about it was ever going to be something inside of Europe because of the banking, you know, the number of banks we have in Europe. But over that 10-year period, it's grown tremendously, you know, initially probably more out of the UK, which was seen as, the, you know, the most transaction-orientated market inside of Europe, and then gradually into France and Germany. And I think, to me, the biggest transition, you know, it really shows that it's come of age as an asset class is probably the Nordics, because if we look at the Nordic banking system, you know, it came out of the financial crisis in probably the strongest place of most of the country banks. And therefore, they were super competitive in providing capital to lending to private equity firms. But we've seen over the last two or three years, even the Nordic banks start to pull back smaller you know, ticket sizes that they're willing to provide borrowers. And therefore, you know, today, private credit is truly a pan-European asset class with transactions happening in all the major Western European um, economies. So, so if it can happen in the Nordics, it can happen anywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I, I think, you know, supply and demand obviously drives the growth of the industry. And, you know, I think the banking industry has changed dramatically in the last 15 years, if we go back from 2008 to now. And I think we've seen that gradually go through all of Europe. The banks have become more concentrated on investment grade, you know, clients have become more concentrated on being ranges of transactions rather than holders and committers of capital. And that's really meant that 
organizations like ours have been able to come in and establish themselves as key players in the market with the support of institutional investors, the big insurance companies, the pension plans initially, um, particularly in Europe and in, in growing international demand. So, you know, I think it's now a core part of any asset allocation process for any major institution. And the European market is now growing rapidly to become, you know, what will be similar to the United States probably in 10 years time. Yeah, because you, you said there about how, um, you know, the banks have other priorities now, you know, so focusing on their investment grade clients, uh, acting as arrangers, etc. I mean, it does periodically sort of crop up in conversation that people say, you know, maybe the banks will come back, you know, some situations arise where people say there's some evidence of that. But, you know, it, your view presumably would be that the landscape has changed irrevocably now. Yeah, I think regulation has really changed the European banking system. You know, we saw the introduction of you know Baal II going to Baal III around the time of the financial crisis, and that really started to reshape the balance sheet of most major banks inside of Europe. We're now on the verge of going into Baal IV, and that's coming in. And I think you know Baal III really penalize banks for holding sub-investment grade risk from a capital charge point of view, and Balfour will be even more penal in that process. So a number of the kind of historic areas, you know, even go back to, you know, real estate, infrastructure, finance, et cetera, all of these asset classes are moving off bank balance sheets, and they're moving into specialized managers who are bringing a diversification of capital into the system. And that's great for the system because it really does de-risk the banking system and it gives returns, you know, are now available for pension plans who are looking after long-term savings uh, for people. Yeah, okay. Um, looking back over the, the course of the business, I mean, the growth of Pemberton has been, I suppose, quite remarkable because we'll come on to talk more about, you know, the strategies that you have and the footprint that you have around the region. So that's been a lot of growth in, in a relatively sort of short period of time. If you were sort of to go back to day one of the business now, knowing what you now know, is there anything you might have done differently that would have perhaps informed the development of the business that you just couldn't take into account at the time? I'm not sure I would change anything from what we did because, you know, we're fortunate in that the team and I had been part of what was the largest underwriting and distribution of levered finance inside of Europe when we were at RBS. And so we had a broad, deep relationship with the private equity firms at the time. I think coming out of a bank into an asset management company to, to build the business, clearly the big challenge or big change is you have to raise the capital. And you know we were very fortunate in day one that a number of leading institutions inside of Europe who knew us well came in to support us, including legal and general as a shareholder. But, you know, building an LP global client base takes a lot of work. And, you know, I've spent hundreds of hours on airplanes flying around the world, meeting people, talking to them, sharing the opportunity set inside of Europe. And I suppose, you know, probably if there was one thing I would have changed slightly is probably to, you know, have an even bigger team on the customer, you know, LP coverage side. You know, our team's been very successful. The, the firm's grown very, very well. But, you know, we made a conscious decision to focus initially on the clients in Europe who knew us as a group, et cetera. And then we've internationalized that, particularly over the last five years. But I would say 
the capital raising was a learning curve. Probably managing my expectations was something I, would, I should have done a little bit better at the beginning. But so far, it's gone extremely well. Yeah, thank you for that. So I suppose, you know, when you think of Pemberton, probably the first thing you think of is, you know, that footprint that you've created in Europe. I mean, in a way, it seems like an obvious thing perhaps to have done now, now that you actually have that coverage, maybe at the time, whereas you said, you know, there were some sceptical views about Europe, particularly in relation to the US. Presumably at that point, it wasn't obvious to necessarily go into every corner of Europe. Others might just have picked a few markets to go into. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think we were fortunate. The the business that we came out of had a very significant footprint, you know, with substantial resources in all the major economies um, covering the private equity firms. And that had been extremely successful for us in building the franchise that we did over that 10-year period. So to me, it was a kind of obvious next step to once again invest in building the offices and, you know, in France, Germany, you know, Italy, Spain, Benelux, Denmark, UK, etc. But I think you know, that's a different model to most organizations. It's a more costly model to put in place. But I think it's really paid off substantially because I think the breadth of relationships we have today in all of those countries, the volume of transactions that we see means that you know, with our range of products we've got inside the firm today, we can be a very, very meaningful partner to the, the firms that we're working with. Yeah. Well, and what was the biggest challenge associated with that build-out in Europe? Is that more to do with getting a, a flow of transactions going? Is it more to do with recruiting the right people? What's, what's really the biggest sort of challenge you're facing? Yeah, I, I think people is always the most important factor. This is a service industry. We're working with private equity firms that have relatively short timelines, they need to have reliable partners. We need to be able to analyze very efficiently the transactions that we're being shown. So for me, having people in each of the countries who have long histories in the asset class, who have led leading businesses in their economies, was really, really you know, fantastic. And I was very fortunate. Um, a number of partners who had worked with me at RBS came across who had run some of those countries. And new people who we'd competed with um, head on in the market um, decided to come and join us. And I think that footprint fell into place relatively quickly. And we were able to build, I think, a very you know, good culture inside the organization. We all knew exactly what we were looking to build. We were excited about the opportunity. And we were able to, I think, attract a very, very you know, strong client base on the private equity side who came to us because they liked us and they knew our ability to transact. Mm. And is it reasonable to say now that uh, Europe has em embraced, fully embraced private debt? I guess some of these markets, I mean, obviously, you know, you've been justified in putting in place the resource on the ground, but obviously some markets are still much more developed than others. Um, have we yet reached that sort of critical point where you can say all the major markets in Europe are now familiar with and comfortable with private debt, or is there still a bit of a way to go in some places? I, I think if you're looking at the, you know, the core economy in Europe, it's pretty well you know, embraced by all of the, the different markets. I think the difference you've always got to remember is the size of the economies and what companies mean based on that economic base. So 
you know, if you look at a mid-sized company in Germany, and if you were to move them into the Nordics, they look like quite a big company in the Nordic economies in that process. So, you know, I think what we've done is built a range of products inside the firm that we can look at different size organizations and we can be effective in providing financing in each one of those economies. And I think that's really helped us in building the footprint because, you know, we're not just sitting there saying, oh, we've got to do 50 million EBITDA companies. We can go down to smaller ones, which are going to be platforms that can be built out and grown. And I think what everyone you know is starting to see is Europe is in the very early stages still of sector consolidation. And you know, what you're starting to be seen put in place is, you know, companies being bought in Spain or in the Nordics, et cetera, which are the starting platform. And then they become the fundamental base of which you can see a pan-European business being built by add-ons in France and Germany, et cetera. So it's no longer just going and buying businesses in the three major economies. It's looking at the best quality platform in all of the jurisdictions, choosing that company and then using that as a launch pad to build a pan-European business. And that's similar to the United States. You know, you have businesses being sitting in Atlanta and Chicago and you know, LA, et cetera. It's not all just sitting on the East and West Coast. And we're seeing that same trend build inside of Europe. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, and you mentioned different products tailored to different businesses as well. This is really the other thing that I wanted to cover in this conversation because, you know, uh, obviously there's been explosive growth in direct lending in Europe, and that's where a lot of people have sort of chosen to focus and have stayed focused on that area. You've developed, you know, quite a wide range now of, of different products. I mean, recently, you know, moving into working capital finance, NAV, the the ERISA fund. I mean, there's there's a lot of innovation and a lot of growth there in terms of the suite of products that you offer. So I'm wondering why you chose to go down that route. I think the main driver behind it is all of the products we have inside the firm are fundamentally looking at single B to triple B corporate risk. And I think we feel that we have deep understanding of analyzing corporates. We operate a sector model approach with our analysts in there. So we have, you know, whether it's a single B technology business or a triple B technology business, we understand the industry, we understand the drivers and what to look for in high quality companies. I think what we've tried to do and, and continue to build on is investors want to build diversified portfolios and, you know, Credit is a key, key part of that. And if you look inside of a bank, it has multi-forms of credit sitting inside of its balance sheet. And that creates diversification in the balance sheet and that you know protects the bank to a certain degree from volatility in the market. And LPs want exactly the same thing. And so direct lending is a very, very important asset class, but there are you know different forms. Working capital finance is looking at the short end inventory and working capital position of a company where you're financing, you know, 30, 60, 180 day loans. And therefore it's a attractive alternative to short end fixed income. We've developed the NAV product and that is effectively working with private equity firms post the investment period. So we can, you know, work with them from start all the way through to maturity of their funds. We've introduced now risk sharing, which is our regulatory capital investments. And I think that's a fascinating asset class where banks are now looking to free up capital in their core portfolios. And these are you know, nearly all investment grade corporates. 
And the banking industry has put in place a regime now with the regulators where they can release capital by doing the SRT trades, rather similarly to how the insurance industry releases capital by doing reinsurance. And it's an incredibly attractive yield for investors. But once again, it's double B and triple B corporates, which we feel we know extremely well. And then we have the CLO business, which is obviously just the public part of the direct lending business. And most importantly, we can now create products where we have a mixture of public and private using our CLO business and our working capital finance as the liquid part of the portfolio, and then our other products as the private part of the portfolio. So it's been a you know, fascinating change. I think the feedback from investors has been extremely positive because it gives them a much broader range of opportunities to invest in the European marketplace. Mm. Do you think that sort of blend of liquid and illiquid approaches is something that may have more of a future in private debt? Because uh, obviously, you know, people point to periods in time where, you know, for investors, the sort of liquid side looks more attractive relative to illiquid and vice versa. Do you think there's more scope for managers to sort of introduce strategies that straddle both? Yeah, I think you've got to be clear of what you're focused on. So I think as a manager today, all of our funds, which are focused on direct lending, have the ability to invest in public markets during dislocation. And and I think that's a valuable tool to have because you're really focused on the relative value and making sure that you're creating the best returns for our LPs. You now have a growing, um, I suppose, group of clients who would like to have some form of liquidity. And as long as that's clearly defined, the you know investor groups coming into that understand that the entire portfolio is not liquid, it's only a percentage of the portfolio, I think it can be a very, very valuable tool in creating you know, interesting opportunity sets for different investors. I think the key thing for me is making sure that the investor really understands the fundamental liquidity profile. You know, If you're 75% in private, then yes, there'll be liquidity from repayments, but you're not able to just to sell the portfolio and therefore you have to rely on the other 25% for the liquidity at any point in time. And you mentioned sort of protecting investors from volatility. I mean, one of the things we've seen th- emerge this year, of course, is the threat, I suppose, if you want to put it that strongly, to private equity deal flow and perhaps some firms finding that they've been, perhaps been over-reliant on that. What would be your view on, I guess, on the future of private equity back deal flow and also making sure that you're not sort of too wrong-footed, you know, when those circumstances arise? I think private equity is, you know, as an industry inside of Europe, is going to continue to grow, you know, very significantly. So I, I don't think the demand side for financing is really going to be interrupted. You may have a quarter or two quarters where activity levels come down, whilst private equity is either, you know, reviewing their portfolio or price expectations on you know, buyers and sellers realigning you know, because of public market dislocations. But I think you know, if you look at this year, it was a relatively quiet Q1. Um, activity started to pick up again you know, slowly in Q2. And if I look at the, you know, the current month, here we are in November, it's probably going to be our busiest month you know, in the last three years. We've had a you know, broad range of deals coming in from all of the different economies inside of Europe because I think buyers' and sellers' expectations have come back much more in line. 
I think the multiples that people are looking at seem to be quite stable because stock markets have been relatively stable this year on a upward or stable trend. And, and I think people have adjusted to the cost of financing, which obviously, you know, it was quite a big shock in Q4, Q1, as we saw central banks make a very, very rapid increase in rates to try to fight off inflation. So, you know, I think these periods of slowness and then, you know, activity increasing will always happen in all asset classes. But I don't think fundamentally there's any slowdown in the demand of private equity firms to find highly attractive businesses, which they can consolidate in Europe. And I think that's a multi-decade trend. Yeah, thank you. I guess the last sort of area that uh, I wanted to discuss would be, you know, a little bit of a peek into the future. You know, you, you were talking earlier about, you know, when we were discussing one thing that you might have taken into account a bit more at the beginning would be in relation to LPs. Um, and I suppose, you know, one side of that that we've seen uh, in recent times has been sort of a slightly more challenging fundraising market. But then also, of course, there's other aspects to the LP relationship than just them handing over checks. You know, it's all to do with providing the right sort of level of transparency and reporting that they want and that kind of thing. So without, you know, not wanting to put words in your mouth, but maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's part of the challenge for the future. But what else do you think might, um, you know, pose some some challenges in the years ahead in, in the European private debt market? I suppose what I would say is that as private assets become a, a bigger and bigger part of people's asset allocation, clearly the transparency and reporting becomes incredibly important. And, you know, in a relatively, you know, new industry, particularly here in Europe, I think we've seen, you know, substantial improvements in the transparency and information flows. And I think actually COVID probably accelerated that process because every LP was very, very focused on what was happening inside their portfolios in that space. I think if you're looking at the next, you know, 10 years, I think, you know, there will be a whole series of steps to make that even more transparent to investors and the information flows will be much more granular in that space. The other key part is, you know, ESG and sustainability. We've invested hugely in that process from day one. You know, we've been, I think, at the forefront of developing ESG in private credit with our ratchets that we brought in you know, many years ago to incentivize borrowers to be much more thoughtful around measuring the performance inside their businesses, particularly around carbon, etc. And increasingly, you know, we're rolling out desktop applications where we can get the information directly from the borrower. We're doing teach-ins with you know, groups of these um, borrowers to how to help them to improve the governance around some of the other parts of, their, you know, of the ESG equation in that space. And I think investors are going to become much more discerning around really the quality and the type of industries that we're investing in, and are they really improving the world that we live in? I think if I look at my, you know, I have four daughters in their early 20s, and they're incredibly conscious, even in their own discretionary spending, around these type of issues. And they're very, very focused about what the world is that they're going to live in in 10 or 20 years' time. And I think that's a real positive in the industry. I think it's making us much more responsible in what we're doing as financiers in the industry. And I think it's putting huge pressure on the private equity firms to make sure that they're focused on improving the companies in every way not just in a financial way. Mm -hmm. And so to me, these are you know super positive trends which are going to be moving 
the world that we live in into a better place. And hopefully, you know, we'll see the some of the benefits of those, you know, in the decades to come in what we're all doing. Just one further question on that. Um, when you were talking about the teachings with borrowers, you know, I guess it's in the dim and distant past now, that point where people questioned really whether there was a role for debt providers in actually steering companies in that sort of uh, ESG sustainable kind of direction. It was seen as something more for the private equity providers. And I think something, you know, I, th I definitely think times have moved on a lot since then. But just wondered how uh, accepting of that borrowers have been you know how how quickly they've adapted to having conversations along those lines with you as well as with the equity side of the equation or whether at least initially there was any resistance from borrowers who were sort of asked questioning why they were necessarily needing to have those kind of conversations yeah I, I suppose if I was to look at the the life cycle of a company that was in private hands and then going into private equity etc Clearly, the first step of a private family business being bought by a private equity firm is quite an adjustment for the management team. And I think, you know, we as borrowers focusing on, you know, their ESG credentials and what they're doing and all of that, at times can be a little bit overwhelming for those companies because they're trying to adjust to a whole series of demands from their equity owners as well as their lenders in that space. I think most of the companies, I would say, are supportive and see the rationale behind it. But, you know, we may have to be um, a little bit hard on them to get them actually moving because they're trying to do some other adjustments post the acquisition. I think private equity, it has now really embraced the concept that if they want to maximize value in these businesses, they really have to make sure that they are being high quality, sustainable businesses and operating to the best governance. And so therefore, you know, if you see businesses which have been owned by, you know, second time round by a private equity firm or a third time round, you know, they are pretty embracing of ESG and they understand how it fits into the business model and the equation of what they're operating. So I'd say it's the, uh, the primary buyout where there's a little bit more encouragement needed and, and much more handholding because they're learning something which may not have been at the top of the priority list when they were owned by their private families. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Simon. It's been great catching up with you, hearing your thoughts on the last 10 years and a little bit about what lies ahead as well. So <laughs> thanks very much. Thanks, Andy. It's great to catch up. That again was Pemberton co-founder and managing partner, Simon Drake Brockman and PDI senior editor, Andy Thompson. Make sure to hit the link in the description to check out PDI's decade issue at privatedinvestor.com for more insight on how the industry has evolved over the last 10 years. And if you want to listen to the rest of this mini-series right now and continue to get great insights on the private credit market afterwards, subscribe to the Private Debt Investor podcast wherever you like to listen or click the link in the description. In the next episode of the mini-series, Andy will speak with Sabrina Fox, CEO of the European Leveraged Finance Association. This episode was produced by me, Mina Tumai, and edited by Eric Fish. Thanks for listening.